a welcome. It's really exciting to me to see so many people interested in this topic. And we're going to talk about most of the things that you had on your list. And if, uh, if you feel like you didn't get an answer, you come and talk to me afterwards. I'm not going to spend too long on colonoscopy preps, but happy to talk about that in the question and answer time because there are good answers to that question. Um, I want to tell you a little bit about myself, and I also want to set a little bit of background. So you don't see a billboard like this in the United States. Uh, it's, it's, the screen's kind of small, isn't it, for this room? Should we dim the lights? Dennis, could you? Thank you. So, But this is a billboard in downtown Nairobi, Pledge to Defeat Diarrhea in Kenya. Text your name to such and such a number. So I show this to make the point that uh, the burden of GI disease is huge in the developing world and that uh, there's a great need for GI services. And, uh, in fact, diarrhea is one of the leading causes of infant and child death around the world, certainly much higher, as the point was made last night, than Ebola, probably even higher than malaria in terms of a cause of death. Now, you don't need an endoscope to treat children and infants with diarrhea, uh, but the uh, developing world is aging. And this, is, this map shows the changes in life expectancy between 1970 and 2010 in various regions around the world. And if you just look for where you're interested, now Haiti, Caribbean, actually it's gone down. That's kind of depressing. But most other places around the world, including Africa, Asia, large increases in average life expectancy over 40 years. And so with that comes a in burgeoning uh, incidence of non-infectious, non-acute illness uh, that presents uh, to medical specialists. And uh, in the GI area, some of those diseases that are very prevalent include hepatitis B. If you're in red here, you've got a lot of hepatitis B, uh, over 7% of the population being chronically infected carriers. And so you can see uh, that all of sub-Saharan Africa is in red there, much of southern Asia. And wherever there's chronic hepatitis B, there's a large need for GI endoscopy uh, and for other aspects of, of GI care. Uh, uh, variceal hemorrhage is going to be very common, for instance. This shows deaths from gastric cancer. And the darker and redder the colors, the, the more the deaths. And you can see, again, that areas of sub-Saharan Africa and Asia uh, uh, that have endemic gastric cancer, huge issue, huge problem. And you might say, well, at least East Africa and South Africa are spared this on the map. West Africa and West Central Africa, a lot of gastric cancer. But then if you look at this map, esophagus cancer, sort of the other half of the continent has a huge problem. And so both of these diseases... Uh, GI endoscopy is important. In Kenya, for instance, which I'm going to show you some uh, more detail about, esophageal cancer is the leading cause of cancer death in adults. So having some sort of endoscopic services for those people is important. There's a lot, there are both great challenges and great opportunities for you if you're interested in GI endoscopy in the developing world. The opportunities, as I've already said, the burden of disease, uh, endoscopy translates into better patient care and better patient outcomes in most developing world settings, and it's clearly, in, a, in my mind, an appropriate technology for the developing world. Uh, endoscopy offers opportunities for increased practice satisfaction for doctors who work in the developing world and their teams. 
uh, and uh, there are opportunities for you to be involved in training, mentoring, collaboration, and relationship with people who share this interest. And just a uh, great need for, for you, you to be involved in what you have to bring and to offer. There are also huge challenges uh, around gastrointestinal endoscopy in the developing world, and a lot of them have to do with equipment, uh, uh, getting the equipment, disinfecting it properly, maintaining it and repairing it properly, getting single-use accessories that are necessary to implement endoscopic therapy. And then there's huge needs for training uh, in most areas of the developing world, training endoscopists in what to do and how to do it, and to deal with growth and volume, as was mentioned. So this is, uh, I'm going to tell you a little bit about my own experience uh, so that you know where I'm coming from. Uh, in the 1990s, I went to visit uh, Tenwick Hospital and uh, uh, got involved with GI endoscopy there. And I did that because I knew about their problem with esophagus cancer. And uh, this is Dr. Russ White, who's speaking at this conference. And these were the other two members of the endoscopy team, David Nyatich and David Rono. And uh, uh, we started to do some work together. And uh, we would see all, every day multiple patients like this, uh, this is the patient in the wheelchair. She's actually the youngest person in this photo, uh, remarkably. She looks like the oldest, but she's the youngest. She's the, the child of these two people. And this is her uncle. And this is David Nyatich here. And she was coming to the hospital starving to death because she hadn't been unable to swallow for a long time, severely dehydrated. Uh, and uh, um, the Lord had provided a way to bring uh, esophageal stents to Tenwick Hospital at that time. I had brought a small uh, number of them, which seemed like a crazy thing because esophageal stents are very expensive. How could that work in the developing world? And, uh, but we put a stent in her, and, and this is uh, shortly afterwards drinking her first Fanta in quite a while. And uh, we discovered that uh, putting stents in people with cancer, while it didn't cure them, uh, changed their outlook, changed their family's outlook, and in fact changed the whole hospital staff's outlook towards this disease. And uh, that was quite exciting to us. And uh, you'll notice now back to this picture, that sign says endoscopy research room. And Russ was very interested in doing research in this area and trying to figure out how to make progress with esophagus cancer. And so uh, he has done a lot of that over the last 15 years and uh, made a lot of progress in various ways uh, uh, and published a lot of his results. Uh, several years ago, he published the world's largest series of esophageal stent placement. So, uh, and I'll tell you a bit about how that became a sustainable practice if we have time. Uh, this now in 2012 is the endoscopy team at Tenwick Hospital, or at least most of the endoscopy team. And uh, there are... Uh, some white faces there. There's a lot of black faces there. Uh, this is Dr. Steve Berger, who's a gastroenterologist from uh, Colorado who retired early and went full-time to Tenwick to work and is just a key member of the, of the team there. This is a guy named Mike Mochiro. Mike was the first esophagus uh, fellow at, uh, at Tenwick Hospital. He, after finishing his internship, decided to stay on for two years and just work in endoscopy, learn endoscopy, and help with research. And this is Mike out in a village enrolling a MZE in a uh, study, research study of esophageal cancer that we did over the last few years, 
looking to screen asymptomatic adults in the region for the precursor lesion of esophagus cancer uh, with the goal of showing that we could prevent esophagus cancer in Kenya. And uh, what, we, what we do with uh, patients, uh, volunteers such as this man, is do an endoscopy and spray Lugol's iodine and look for these unstained patches of squamous dysplasia. And then those who have high-grade dysplasia, we're enrolling in a treatment protocol where they're treated endoscopically for this change. And so it's very exciting for me over the last 15 years to have been involved, to have a small role in this work, and to see us moving from doing nothing for people dying of esophagus cancer to palliation to uh, the possibility now of prevention. Now this, I'm going to switch locales. This is Mbingo Hospital in Cameroon, and some of the staff from the hospital are here. So those of you who want to make a link around this subject, I encourage you to talk to Dr. Sparks uh, and Dr. Palmer at the end of, of this hour. Uh, but Mbingo is, is set in this beautiful setting in, uh, in sort of the northwest province of Cameroon. And this is the endoscopy room there. This is Emmanuel, who's the uh, technician who maintains things and disinfects the endoscopes and, and is quite meticulous in his work. This is Dennis. I didn't know he'd be here, so I had to show his picture. And uh, with, with a friend of his, Cameroonian friend of his, and the, one of the big emphases at Mbingo Hospital is education. So this hospital, they're teaching surgical residents, and they also have a medical residency program, which was really exciting to me when Dennis, who's an internist, told me he was starting a medical residency program. This is now a few years ago. Dennis, I think this is 2009 even. This is uh, maybe 2010. This is a morning report with some residents. And Dennis's medicine residency has grown as well. This is now 2012, a photo at uh, Morning Report with residents. And the emphasis at Mbingo, not so much of research, but more on education. And that's what drew me to work there and get involved as a short-term person. And if you do endoscopy at Mbingo, you will always actually not be doing it yourself. You'll be teaching a resident how to do endoscopy, and that might be a general surgery resident in Steve Sparks' program or an internal medicine resident in Dennis's program. And to me, that's just a hugely strategic thing to be training other people how to do what you know how to do. For a short-termer, uh, it doesn't get better than that. And then the sort of the final uh, thing I want to mention to you that I've had the privilege to be involved with is education in short courses overseas. This is a group of largely surgical faculty members at Korlebu Teaching Hospital in Accra, Ghana, uh, where about six years ago uh, we, we began directing and ho holding annual short courses in GI endoscopy. And um, there's a huge need in West Africa for, for endoscopy for the reasons I gave before. And the surgical faculty wanted to increase its skill level and begin to teach others in the region. And so uh, we, this annual conference has happened for six years now, and this year was the first September in six years I didn't go to Accra for the course. And it had nothing to do with Ebola. It had to do with the fact that they taught it by themselves. They didn't need any help anymore teaching the course, which was really thrilling to me. This is a group of Mongolian gastroenterologists, and I've been involved in that same process in Mongolia over the past six years or so, thanks to a general surgery missionary named Buck Rusher, who's in the blue shirt there in the front row. Um, and uh, co -direct, I 
have co-directed a workshop there with Davidorz Duger here, who's on the medical school faculty. And again, I've seen that grow to the point where they don't need me anymore, and they're running their own workshops now and taking it around the country of Mongolia to the different provinces and teaching endoscopists in regional hubs how to do how to advance as endoscopists. And these short courses generally have a few things in common. There's some didactic lectures. There's a ex vivo lab, where we, which is a very effective way to teach endoscopy skills uh, in the developing world. Here, this uh, endoscoping a pig upper GI tract, but uh, you can also use cow colons. And then mentoring endoscopists in, in, in the endoscopy lab, this... Uh, uh, woman here, this, this internist is doing the first uh, variceal band ligation that had been done at Corlebu. This is a number of years ago now. And then we have a little graduation ceremony and we try to hand out some equipment and accessories. Um, these efforts that, that I've been telling you about now are, are secular. Uh, there's nothing overtly Christian about these workshops I've been part of in, in these settings, but they're great ministry opportunities. And uh, this is one of my good friends at Corley-Boo Hospital, who's a general surgeon there uh, and a leader in his department. And this is a patient that we're about to go do an ERCP on together. And as you work with these colleagues over, over time, over years, share cases, share emails, share life, get to know each other's families, as they come to visit you in your place and you visit them in their place, uh, uh, these are relationships that, that the Lord uses. So I'm back to my list now, and I want to briefly run through some of these issues that I listed before and then get, your, get uh, some conversation going. So it is absolutely the case that GI endoscopy leads to improved outcomes in, the, in developing world settings. And uh, dyspepsia is very common in most of the developing world. And how many of those people with dyspepsia uh, have... Uh, peptic ulcer disease, how many have a malignancy that needs to be detected, how many just have a functional problem. The best way to answer that is endoscopy. Uh, GI bleeding is common in many developing world settings, and if it's variceal bleeding, often there is no, the surgeon often has very little to offer in a, in a rural setting or in a develop, even in an urban setting and in the developing world, and it, if there's an endoscopic solution, it can be life-saving. Uh, Buck Rusher, whose picture I showed you, uh, came to Mongolia looking for a mission opportunity and walked into a hospital. And was, when they found out that he was a surgeon, they dragged him into the OR and said, quick, help us, this boy is dying of variceal bleeding. And the next day he was on national TV. So, uh, so uh, uh, that is one example. Um, I mentioned patient satisfaction. I'm a practice satisfaction. I think this is quite important in some settings. And it'd be interesting to hear uh, colleagues from Cameroon comment on this. But I think it's quite satisfying to make a diagnosis. And in, in many settings, much of the time, you're not really making a diagnosis. You're treating empirically. But there are situations where a diagnosis is called for. And the ability to make a GI diagnosis uh, or exclude a diagnosis with confidence is satisfying. The ability to treat a patient and see them do well is satisfying. And this is satisfying not only to the missionary doctor, but to the whole team that's involved in the work. Now, the challenges uh, begin with getting endoscopy equipment. And uh, some of you who are here mentioned you want to see endoscopy services instituted at your hospital or facility in the developing world. How do you do that? 
And I do not have all the answers about this. I'm hoping some people here have some answers to share. But here is what I know and have observed about this. Um, it is possible to get new equipment, to get used equipment, or to get loaned equipment. And uh, new equipment is expensive. If you want to, to buy in the U.S. a very basic setup that involves an endoscopy tower, a couple of gastroscopes, a colonoscope, uh, and you're probably you're going to be talking at least fifty thousand, if not a hundred thousand dollars for that equipment. So uh, that is typically out of the budgetary range that a mission institution is going to want to spend on this, because this is just one little niche, right, of a broad array of, of health services. Um, there are discounts available. Uh, the Stortz Company, which in the United States only sells uh, operating room rigid equipment and, and devices around the world, is an important supplier of flexible GI endoscopy equipment. And uh, Stortz is interested in Africa. And for instance, the, and, and I know they will provide about a 25% discount for mission hospitals at least mission hospitals that they get to know. Unfortunately, for most mission hospitals, that is not enough either. And uh, the Stortz equipment's a bit cheaper to start with. You take off 25%, it's yet a bit cheaper. But uh, I've yet to know of a mission hospital that's actually availed itself of that offer to buy equipment from them. I know Mbingo has considered it uh, at one point. But uh, – that, that possibility exists. And then in certain situations, it's possible to get donated new equipment from a manufacturer. And this is especially true if there's a transition in their model not may, uh, line. You know, for every five years or so, these companies tend to update their equipment, and they're offering a new model, and they've got some of the old stuff still in the warehouse, and no one in the U.S. wants to buy the old stuff. And if you, and this the access to that as a donation will only work through a personal contact. If you know somebody at the company, you know a rep or you know a vice president or you have a way to make a, a case to those people at the right time, you can get donated equipment. But it's very much a, a relationship-based uh, matter. Now, used equipment is the way that most uh, – mission hospitals have gotten NGI endoscopy uh, equipment is, is through obtaining something that someone else has used and is ready to give up and that still has useful life in it. And traditionally, the source of this has been American or Canadian or European hospitals, ambulatory surgery centers that are turning over their equipment and they've got a bunch of used endoscopy equipment that they may be willing to donate. Unfortunately, over the last decade, it's become much harder to get access to that equipment. And the reason is that the vendors of this equipment have realized what's happening to that used equipment, and they want a piece of that value. And so now when a major equipment, a GI endoscopy equipment company, comes in to, to make a contract to resupply a hospital with new, new endoscopy equipment, they say, we want that old equipment in trade-in, and we'll give you quite a bit of discount in exchange for that. And they'll turn around, refurbish that equipment, and sell it in the developing world. So uh, you can still get uh, used equipment from hospitals in the U.S., but again, it's going to be a relationship matter. It's going to be you going to your hospital administrator and saying, you know, I know we're buying new GI endoscopy equipment. Here's an opportunity at this place, and all the better if you and others in the hospital are already partnering with the place you're interested in and saying, you know, is there any opportunity for us to get – 
a donation of the equipment instead of you trading it in. Or the hospital may be willing to sell it to you for the same amount they would get in trade-in from the vendor. And that is a very reasonable option too. And I think part of what we are called to as Westerners, uh, resource-rich people in this, is to put some money on the line when we have to, to help our colleagues in the developing world have what they need. So uh, these are our options. You can buy used endoscopy equipment on the Internet. It's pretty expensive, I can tell you. I personally have never bought anything that way, but I see the, uh, the websites, and you can go that route. Uh, and then you can get used equipment from repair companies. And uh, this is, a, is an interesting option, too, because... Uh, repair outfits will sometimes get scopes that they think are in pretty good shape and that they have access to purchasing. And you may be able to get equipment cheaper that way than through the Internet. And if you uh, need to know the name of an of a, uh, uh, endoscopy repair company that might be interested in doing that, then talk to me afterwards, and I can give you uh, an email address that you could contact to try and get some help. And I, I'm uh, not going to mention it on the recording or in the screen here, uh, and then finally, loaned equipment, which is not going to be terribly useful um, in most settings. Now, single-use accessories are often just as important because if you want to do anything uh, therapeutic, if you want to ban varices, even if you want to take a biopsy, you need a biopsy forceps. So how do you get these things? And it's often uh, quite easy to get vendors who call on your hospital or facility in the U.S. to, to give you some, some stuff to take with you. Your own endoscopy equipment may well have stuff. And often it will be close to outdating or outdated accessories. And I, my own view on this issue is that outdated accessories are a little different than outdated pharmaceuticals. You know, an outdated pharmaceutical is a bad idea to take that to another place. Uh, for various reasons. An outdated biopsy forceps, if the package hasn't been opened, if it's still clean, I personally see nothing wrong with that. And I'm not aware of any countries that have laws against bringing in outdated accessories as opposed to outdated pharmaceuticals. Some of you may have stories to tell that will educate me about that. But I personally don't have a problem taking an outdated piece of metal or plastic or silicone with me to a mission hospital in my suitcase. Uh, one of the issues around single-use accessories is training the people who receive them how to use them. And then another issue is sustainability and how to provide a supply. So what are the routes to sustainability for single-use accessories in endoscopy? Well, the first one is corporate partnership. And so when I first went to Tenwick, I brought with me, really through a miraculous situ uh, arrangement of the Lords, I brought with me about 25 esophageal stents which at that time was about $50,000 worth of stents. And, and that was great. We've actually helped. To, we had enough to figure out how to actually get them put into patients there without fluoroscopy, et cetera. Um, but 25 stents is a drop in the bucket in East Africa and esophagus cancer. Um, but we ended up with a partnership with Boston Scientific, the manufacturer of the stents. And uh, uh, we sent them a bunch of pictures and told them about what was happening uh, with their stents in East Africa. And, and they had, at that time, a supply chain problem that Tenwick could solve for them. And they started sending stents regularly to Russ and donating. Now, that only went on for about five years, but it was, became, it was at least 
for those five years a sustainable supply of single-use accessories. Now, another option for sustainability in this area is an overseas vendor. And so uh, the esophageal stents you see on the right don't come from Boston Scientific. They're made in China. They rip off multiple American patents. They will never be for sale in the United States. But they cost only about 7% of what a stent costs in the United States. 7%. Okay? So um, uh, all the stents that are put in at Tenwick now are, come from China. And there's a cost to that. They're not free. Uh, the cost of an esophageal stent is going to be a cost of about three months' income, two to three months' income for a typical family in that region. Um, but it's sustainable. And if you want to put in thousands and thousands of esophageal stents, you have to have a sustainable pathway. And it turns out that's affordable for most families in that region who decide that they want this. And it's, uh, the, the cost structure of endoscopy is a whole other topic. But it's quite striking that at Tenwell Hospital, they're very honest. You come to that hospital with dysphagia and you're told in clinic you probably have esophagus cancer. Some people just go home at that stage. Others want a diagnosis. Others say, yes, we want a stent. All the prices are laid out ahead of time. The family huddles and makes a decision. But Tenwick has found a route to sustainability of this by buying stents from China. And they, if you go online, you'll find there are online, uh, 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 what's the word? Meeting places, it's not a meeting place, but clearing houses for endoscopy equipment. And you can buy banding kits and biopsy forceps and stents and just about whatever you want manufactured in India or China. Then another approach to single-use accessories is to help establish a national distributor. And this is what we did in Mongolia. So uh, my Mongolian colleagues are very interested in doing ERCP, and they're getting to the, they got to the point a couple of years ago where they were doing far more ERCP than I could support with annual trips with suitcases stuffed with stents and papillotomes and guide wires. So what to do? So I talked to American companies and found a, a vendor, in this case Wilson Cook, that was willing to establish a national distributorship in Ulaanbaatar. And... Uh, if you, now when there's an ERCP done at most of the hospitals in UB, uh, the guy from Wilson Cook is invited to come, and he comes, and the endoscopist decides in the middle of the procedure, okay, I need a stent of such length and diameter, and he hands it over, and, uh, the, and the payment has been arranged ahead of time. And so at, and in that setting, that's what works, but it's a, it's a, it's a uh, sustainable arrangement uh, through a vendor, and so I have nothing to do with that. I don't carry those things in my suitcase, but, it, but, but sustainability is key. And then finally, disinfection of single-use accessories, and this is a variceal band ligation cap, and this is a key aspect as well because a lot of what is single-use can really be multi-use. And uh, if you're particularly interested in this, uh, I'd be happy to teach you how to get multiple uses out of a, a variceal band ligation kit. And uh, I've got a couple of setups with me. And if, if it's important enough to you that you want to spend an hour learning how, I'm happy to meet with you and teach you that sometime during the next day. Talk to me afterwards. Now, um, a another issue, another challenge is maintenance and repair of endoscopes. Most uh, hospitals that get into GI endoscopy overseas are uh, ambushed by this issue. You know, the administrators figure an endoscope is like a surgical retractor. 
You buy it, and it's going to work for 50 years. And it's not going to need any maintenance, any repair. You drop it on the floor, you pick it up and clean it off. You step on it, you pick it up, clean it off. It's a retractor. It works great. And an endoscope, is, most of you know, is not like that. And if you don't take good care of your endoscope, and if you don't do preventative maintenance, in three to six months after you start using it, it will be trash. You may as well throw it out because it's going to be wrecked. And uh, uh, most hospitals don't think about that. They, they may not, uh, no one may have told them. Or if the equipment's donated, they may not care. They may think, well, we'll use it for six months and we'll wait for someone else to give us another one. But none of this is, is sort of sustainable. And so for me, a huge emphasis in this area is teaching maintenance and repair of endoscopes. This thing on the left is a leak tester. An endoscope is like your house. The inside is supposed to be dry and the outside is supposed to be wet. And if water gets in your house, you're not happy, right? Well, if water gets into the interior of an endoscope, it corrodes the cables, it corrodes the electronics, and it destroys the endoscope from the inside out. And so leak testing is a way to test for little breaks or holes in the, in the scope that, where water and moisture can get in. You, you have to leak test an endoscope after every use. And it's hard to persuade people at a busy mission hospital that there needs to be a person who just spends time doing this after every use of the instrument. Uh, but uh, if it doesn't happen, endoscopy will not be sustainable at your institution. Um, and, uh, and so this is really key to sustainability of endoscopy services. And somebody has to own the process of leak testing and maintaining the endoscope. And if it's not the doctor, then you have a problem. When you visit Africa, you'll see two different models about this. If you go to a government hospital, you'll find that they often have no endoscopes. And you say, well, tell me about your endoscopes you used to have. Oh, yeah, we used to have a lot of endoscopes. And often you can get the, they'll take you and show you a room or a closet with endoscope suitcases piled to the ceiling with endoscopes that are, are trash and that were donated over the past period of years. And it's because no one at that hospital really has ownership. If you then go to a private practice across town where the, the, the endoscopist owns their own endoscopes and is running a private practice in that very same city in Africa, you'll see meticulous maintenance and repair. And it's the endoscopist themselves who does it. They don't even trust their nurse to do the leak testing. They're doing it themselves because they have a financial stake in the equipment. And so... Having someone at the facility who owns this issue and, is, and having the, the physicians uh, or endoscopists owning it, at least modeling ownership of it, becomes key if you want to have sustainable endoscopy. Now, repair costs is another issue because what happens is a leak develops in the endoscope and it's going to have to be repaired. And that repair, the actual cost of doing that repair is about $100. And that's going to happen every three to six months with most endoscopes in, in, that are in heavy use. And um, the problem is that for endo endoscopists in Africa, well, you've got to get that scope to either KeyMed in, in uh, Britain or else to a repair company in the U.S. And so that transit can take time. Are you willing to take your endoscope out of service, send it off, maybe not have it back for a month or two, not take care of patients with it in that meantime in order to have a sustainable service, or you're just going to keep using the scope with a hole in it, and it will be trash in the next few months. 
Um, that's a difficult decision in many settings, um, but it's one that has to be talked through and thought about. Um, and then how do you pay for the repair? And uh, oftentimes uh, hospitals will build into the cost of an endoscopy a little bit that goes to a fund to help pay for repairs when the time comes. Uh, uh, I and some colleagues have been interested in seeing repairs get done locally and because we think that that's a solution both to decreasing the cost and the turnaround time. And so uh, in Accra, Ghana now, there is a guy who runs, a, a, a Ghanaian guy who runs, who's an engineer who runs his own medical supply business who's been to the U.S., has learned how to do simple repairs on endoscopes at a, at a uh, repair facility run by a Christian in this country and is offering same-day turnaround for simple repairs on endoscopes very cheaply in Accra. And it's Accra, because of where it is, it's very easy to get scopes there from other West African countries. Now, we don't yet have that same kind of thing in East Africa, but it's, some, it's a goal. And then you, if you're a short-termer, what may often, your, one of your jobs may often be to carry an endoscope back or forth and to help uh, with that. Disinfection of endoscopes, uh, so at least one of you asked about. And this is another key issue because GI endoscopy is a very, can be a very effective way of transmitting bacterial pathogens. We're dealing with that in the U.S. now. There was an article in JAMA about two months ago about uh, strains of highly resistant gram-negative bacteria transmitted from one patient to the other in the U.S. via duodenoscopes. So it's an important issue. But in the developing world, you could transmit hepatitis viruses. Conceivably, you could transmit HIV using a non-disinfected or poorly disinfected endoscope. And certainly, you could transmit TB. And H. pylori, you will readily transmit if you don't have a well-disinfected scope. So... This, that as well as repair and, and maintenance of scopes, another aspect that an institution getting into endoscopy has to think about is how are we going to disinfect the endoscopes? And there are two essential aspects. One is manual cleaning of the endoscope, both its outside and its inner channels to get rid of particulate matter in the endoscope. And then the second is after manual cleaning, high-level disinfection of that endoscope, which is not sterilization but which deals with the, the organisms I've listed there. And that can be done in a machine uh, or it can be done manually. Most developing world settings it's done manually. And the two techniques are comparable in terms of their effectiveness. The issue with manual cleaning is people tend to take shortcuts. They tend to leave out a few steps or maybe stop doing it altogether, whereas a machine is a machine and it will do it right every time. Um, so, again, this is an issue that has to be owned by someone important at the institution who models uh, the importance of this and understands the process. There are many disinfectants that can be chosen. Usually, to be sustainable, it's best to use one that's available in country, so you're not trying to import a disinfectant from overseas. And most often, that will be glutaraldehyde, although there's many of these other things I've listed here. You can use povidone iodine, and you can use bleach to disinfect endoscopes, but it will take a real toll on the scope. So it's not advised. Uh, you will shorten the lifespan of your endoscope using bleach, and you will, you will yellow the lens using povidone till you can barely see anymore. So um, really, you, and glutaraldehyde is generally available in most countries. There's issues around using it safely, but it's what most people are going to choose. Now, and this is uh, 
This is the brand that's available in Nigeria. And if you look at the back, there's a couple of important statements about glutaraldehyde. It gives you the time to destroy various organisms. And you'll see for most things, it's 10 minutes. But for TB, it's going to be an hour of immersion time in the disinfectant. So uh, as a hospital, you're going to have to think about that issue. Uh, how prevalent is TB? What, you, what approach are you going to take? Are you only going to do long disinfection for people you suspect of having TB, who, frankly, you'd rather not have to come for an endoscopy to start with? Um, uh, and, and that's going to be something to think through. Uh, the other important thing it says here, 14 days after activation, leftover solution must be discarded. This pro product is not effective until activated. So most of these solutions are only good for a couple weeks. And if your staff is using the same solution for three months to disinfect the endoscope, you're not, guess what? You're not getting disinfection. So there has to be a process in place that, so you can start to see it's a commitment. To a, for an institution to get into this. It's not like buying a retractor. Uh, and, um, and that's something to think through clearly before you make the investment or get the equipment. Um, finally, training. Uh, there's great opportunities. Those of you who do endoscopy now, you have skill set that other people really want to have in the developing world. And you have great opportunities to train not only national uh, physicians and surgeons, but national nurses and technicians and others how to do endoscopy. And uh, for instance, at, Tenw at Tenwick, a lot of the endoscopy is done by a nurse. And uh, not only the diagnostic, but the therapeutic endoscopy is done by a nurse and a team uh, that need no doctor. And they're about the best in the world at what they do, actually, from what I've seen. Uh, they teach most visiting gastroenterologists a thing or two. Um, but uh, so there's a huge opportunity for training. But the host, your host should be in the driver's seat. And if you are a short-termer endoscopist going somewhere and they're interested in endoscopy, you let them define the agenda, what they want, what they are interested in, what they need from you. Don't come with your own expectations of what you think would be so great for them to have. Uh, and um, uh, when you are there, in the way that you interact and the way that you teach, you will be teaching them how to teach. So it's very important to think through how, how am I going to interact, how am I going to encourage and instruct, and how can I be a model for them in this way. And uh, uh, invite your colleagues at that institution to your place. Say, if you're an American and you're working in the U.S., say, invite them to come to you where you are and watch what you do for a week or two Learn, see how your unit works. See if their nurse wants to come and, and learn something about how the nursing assistants work and how they clean endoscopes at your hospital and, and build relationships. Pictures on the right is an ERCP in Mongolia, and uh, it's not only during the procedure, but afterwards you can see lots of motions and talking about how did this work and how did that work. Uh, that sort of training is really key. This is, a, this is a Kenyan man named Bernard Maritim snowblowing my driveway in Minnesota uh, one early February morning before going to work. Uh, Bernard uh, was a nurse at uh, Tenwick Hospital, and we had the, the, the program, research program had gotten at Tenwick to the point where the, the feeling was we, they really needed a cytotechnologist. And so Bernard, who'd never really been out of Kenya, came to Rochester, Minnesota, lived for a year with us, and took a cytotechnology training course. And uh, he arrived in August, and on September 10, he emailed his friends back at, 
in Africa and said, please pray for me, it is desperately cold here. <laughs> we, we were all still in T-shirts on September 10. But as you can see, he adapted. And, uh, and uh, this is Bernard back in his cytotechnology lab uh, at Tenwick, where he's a real leader now in this area. So my last slide, uh, if you're a short-termer going, focus on relationships and the people you're working with. Don't focus so much on the technology issues are really important, and I've spent a lot of time talking about them. But focus on relationships, on, on, on getting to know the people you're working with. Plan on returning and being involved. Don't be just a tourist. Uh, ask how you can help. Don't assume what you think you know is needed or could, could be done. And be willing to put yourself out to try and help with things like accessories and training and endoscopes and help your colleagues build a team. So I'm going to stop there and, in, uh, and, I, and invite comments. I think maybe I've talked too long, but let's have a discussion about issues and, and what you see as solutions. Yes, thank you. So in Africa, oh, I guess I should leave this on. In Africa, your, your typical national endoscopist in Africa will be really good at a diagnostic upper endoscopy because it's 95% of what they do. And uh, very cautious and timid and bad at colonoscopy. And generally will be able to pass a scope to the sigmoid. That's about it. When we started our workshops in Accra, we were working with people who were really the leading endoscopists in their country, and their sequel intubation rate was 20%. Yeah. So, um, but this is what training is all about. And, and they really had never done endoscopic therapy. They'd done a little, very limited. So the needs, usually, if you're working with a national endoscopist, which is in some ways where the future is, if you're working with a national endoscopist in sub-Saharan Africa, they... I have generally have two big needs. They need to learn how to treat variceal bleeding, and they're very interested in learning that, um, and treating GI bleeding in general through an endoscope. And then they're very interested in learning how to do colonoscopy because there's an increasing need, actually. Uh, as I've talked about, non-infectious disease, chronic illness coming, colon cancer is on the rise, unfortunately, in Africa. And so there's an interest in learning how to do a diagnostic colonoscopy. So our colleagues at Corlebu who are serious about endoscopy, their sequel intubation rates now are over 90%. And they do, uh, they do a lot of endoscopic therapy for varices. It's very routine there now, and it's very sustainable. But so those are generally, did I answer your question? Yeah, yeah. And so, so those are the things as an endoscopist from the, from the West, you're going to be able to help with both those issues, actually, quite a bit. Yes? Yeah, it's a great question. So what about resources? So there's the World Gastroenterology Organization, or WGO, has a website. And on it, there's a series of global guidelines. And the great thing about the WGO's website is that the guidelines are stratified by resources. And a lot of the guidelines have to do with disease entities 
hepatitis B, H. pylori, etc. But they have some on endoscopy. For instance, there's one there on disinfection of endoscopes that offers you three levels of how to safely disinfect depending on what your resource level is. So I would direct you to the WGO Global Guidelines website. Uh, that's a great question, and that you'll get a lot of stuff about disinfection there. Now, maintenance of endoscopes, preventative maintenance, that is going to be vendor-specific. So generally, if you get an endoscopic system from Pentax, let's say, you can get a, a uh, laminated thing to put on the wall that shows all the pictures, shows diagrams step-by-step step how to uh, leak test and disinfect a Pentax endoscope. And Olympus will have its own version. Storts will have their own version. So that you, that you might be able to find on their own company websites, actually. Um, but I think one, you mentioned you want to start doing this at your place. And what I would say is, I've, in some ways, I've, what, I'm saying, what I'm telling you is may not be welcome, but it's not like a retractor. I mean, unless you have a nurse or somebody at your place who has the time and space to help with some of these equipment issues, you're going to be disappointed because you're going to get all the stuff and get going, and you're going to be out of business in six months because the equipment's got, done. So... That's some important issues to think through. And some people may say, well, in that case, we're not ready. And others would say, well, if we could get some short-term partner to come and get involved and help us for a while, we would do great with that. And you know, those, none of these problems are insurmountable, but, but the, you have to think about them ahead of time. So, yeah. Can you talk a little bit about sedation? Yeah, sedation. So great question. A lot of endoscopy in the developing world is done with no sedation. And... Um, it's worth saying a few things about that. Um, I've had an endoscopy without sedation. So, you know, I don't think it's the end of the world. Um, um, there are developed countries that do it the same. Most endoscopy in, in Great Britain and Japan is done without sedation, diagnostic endoscopy. Um, we in the U.S. have a culture where there is zero tolerance for pain or discomfort. Uh, most of the cultures we're talking about, there's a substantially higher tolerance for those things and expectation about these things. Uh, in addition, most of the risk of diagnostic endoscopy has to do with the sedation. Now, when you, when you look at therapeutic endoscopy, that's no longer true. But when you're talking about diagnostic upper endoscopy, most risk is inherent in the sedation. So one can make a good case that endoscopy should be done with no sedation or light sedation in many developing world settings. Now, my friends at Tenwick, when we first started putting esophageal stents in, insisted on doing the whole thing without sedation. And that's a bit, bit more for the patient to swallow, so to speak. Uh, and and uh, um, now they've changed. As, some of, as my colleagues there have gotten older and a little wiser, now they sedate anyone who's having a therapeutic procedure, which I think is a really good thing. But they have a nurse anesthetist there doing it with them, a Kenyan nurse anesthetist, because all the issues around monitoring safety are very important with sedation. So each place is going to strike its own balance about this. You want to be compassionate. You want to be careful. You want to be loving in what you do for people. But you also want to be safe. Um, and so um, I don't have one-size-fits-all answer. Yeah. Other comments about these issues? By the way, as I said, some people in the room know more than me. Anyone in the room want to comment on that disinfection issue? I mean, on that uh, sedation issue? In Canada, it varies from suburb to suburb. Uh, some suburbs we give, we have given upwards of like 19 milligrams of 
Yeah, yeah. Well, sometimes, uh, uh, not to throw stones, but sometimes huge amounts of sedation are a cover for less than optimal technique. Mm-hmm. So there's all sorts of issues around sedation. Yes. Yes. So prep for colonoscopy is a recurring issue, and it's a question of local, what's available locally. And if you really want to know, you need to visit a f- few pharmacies in the, in the urban, se- urban settings in whatever country you're going to. It would be wise to stop in and see. A lot of countries now, polyethylene glycol is actually available, which is go lightly. And so that is, you know, easy and very safe. Um, in other places where it's not available, the prep I've seen used most often is a magnesium preparation, magnesium citrate or even magnesium sulfate. And that works very well. Uh, the problem with magnesium is you can't give it to people in renal failure. You're, you're going to cause fluid and electrolyte shifts. So people who have cardiac disease, liver disease, uh, respiratory disease as well may be affected by that. Um, Enemas work for the left colon to a certain extent. Uh, but, uh, Dennis, do you want to comment on this, on, on uh, prep, colon prep? We've done uh, several different things. Uh, what we ended up currently doing, I mean, it's partly because by default that we don't have access to other kinds of things. Is a clear liquid diet on the day prior to the colonoscopy. We used Docolax, a big uh, six mm-hmm. Docolax tablets. By mouth. By mouth, and then a uh, and then an enemas until clear, and probably 75% of the time you get a reasonable prep. 25% of the time you don't. I've seen lots of sequel poles at your place with that prep. So yeah, yeah, yeah it works. I was going to say something about about the sedation. Yes. Uh, especially for upper cases, it's a it's a real trade-off because. Mm. If you sedate the patient, you have to recover them. Hmm. And uh, we're a high-volume uh, endoscopy center where we don't have a lot of staff. We don't actually even have a very good place to recover patients. And uh, we don't have people to watch them. So we generally, we do some sedation, and we're doing a little bit more more recently, probably since the last time you were there. Hmm. But uh, most patients... We use what we call verbal anesthesia. <laughs> uh, and uh, most patients tolerate the procedure reasonably well. And as you, as you mentioned, speed is of the essence. Uh, if, you, if, you're, if you can get the procedure done fairly quickly, and that's the, that's the case most of the time, then uh, it's probably more acceptable. If you get into in therapeutic things where you're down there a lot longer, it's much more difficult for the patient. And some patients, it's difficult no matter what you do. Yeah, that's true. Uh, Thank you. Yeah. I had a question on that level. Um, if you're, as for most surgeons, you want to do as much as you can, and you get super excited that you can come, just you want to do it, see as many patients, and you have these targets. How do you balance the resources um, and what you have? What have you found to be like sustainable models for seeing the maximum amount of patients with a minimal amount of resources? Because you probably only have two or three endoscripts that have to be so question about maximal use of minimal resources. I'd be happy for people who actually live overseas to answer that question, who have experience. Uh, colleagues from Cameroon, Dennis, you want to comment again on that question? Well, we have a whole separate team that uh, is assigned. That's all they do. We do as many as, I think our record is 14 now or 
And so the problem is with all the logistics of getting the patients, getting the scopes, all of that stuff, it really doesn't lend itself to uh, having people working in other places. It's been a problem with the surgery residents even that they aren't, you know, they have a lot of things they want to be doing and procedures happen when they happen and there's a there's downtime between, but you know, that's the way it you have to go get the patients, you have to take them back, you have to do all that recovery and stuff, clean the scopes. It, so it's a uh, how you maximize it is, uh, is a challenge. Then the other issue I would think would be would be indica- acceptable indications. So in some places, you know, dyspepsia is not an acceptable indication for endoscopy, which I think makes a lot of sense, at least until we've tried a few things medically, right, to treat you. And so that, you know, you want to be wise with your resources. And if you can try empiric treatment for H. pylori and peptic disease before you endoscope someone, well, that makes a lot of sense in most of these settings. Um, so defining the indications is important. And then a place like Dennis's has growth pains because he gets to the point where he says, I really need more than one endoscope because I can't afford to wait 45 minutes between endoscopies to have a clean endoscope. And uh, maybe I need some facility for recovery. I mean, you know, these things are a whole other category. Yes? What's your minimum surgical backup to feel confident to do the Great question. Minimum surgical backup to feel, you mean in case there's a complication, such as a bleed or a perforation? Yeah, excellent question. Well, again, I'm going to defer to my colleagues in Cameroon to start that one. What do you think, Steve, as a general surgeon to that question? General anesthetic, and you need a surgeon. Your minimal backup. Otherwise, when you perk the colon or you go through the static flexure, your patient will die. Yeah. So I think it's a great question, and I would agree with that. I've done endoscopy in settings where there was no surgical backup, and I personally think that that's not unreasonable if it's necessary, but it certainly changes your approach as an endoscopist because safety becomes absolutely paramount. The good thing about endoscopy in most developing world settings is the surgeon is doing the endoscopy, and that makes a huge amount of sense because, you know, uh, they're comfortable with dealing with a complication if it occurs. So I think it's great that general surgeons are here talking about doing this overseas because that, that solves that that should solve that issue. If you're an internist or a nurse or someone else doing this, you have to think about that issue. And still, diagnostic endoscopy is so safe that it's still reasonable, probably. Um, but uh, beyond that, maybe not. You're in a little different class than most of us. You're amazing when you scope. So yeah. We can't use your... Your acceptance rate of when you scope as, as any of us normal. No, people. but most, it, but if, but if you work with African endoscopists, they think this way, and when they do an upper endoscopy, they're very, they almost seem timid in their method compared to an American or a Canadian endoscopist. But it's because of this issue, and uh, they do very well at it. So, so you know, it's not just me. The issue of safety. Uh the experience that we have out there is it's really the problems that we've gotten into have always been around patient selection. I mean, we do we do endoscopy on unstable patients, and those are the ones we have trouble with. Mm-hmm. The issue of perforation and that is doesn't, almost doesn't exist. I mean, if you're, it could. I mean, you can you certainly can damage 
but if, if you've been trained and you're confident, that should be an extremely unusual thing. Yeah. It's not that difficult a procedure. The scope is blunt on the end. You really have to push to make a hole in something. Um, the problem, though, is more when you get patients who have bled or, you know, they're hypotensive when they come in and you're trying to get a diagnosis or, or something of that sort, you know. I have one. Or they're going to aspirate. They come with gastric outlet obstruction, very common. And they're going to aspirate during the attempt to intubate the esophagus. Yeah, actually, the interesting thing is when you do, when you uh, scope them, when they, when you with gastric outlet obstruction, when they're awake, they actually they do better. Don't aspirate uh, nearly as much as they would if you sedate them. Correct. So there's, you know, back to this, they do protect their airway somewhat. So it's time to stop. I really appreciate your being here. If I can help you with issues, if you want to learn how to reload a band ligator or you want more information about repair resources, uh, come talk to me. Thank you very much for your attendance. No, go for it. <laughs>